In your Bibles to Matthew chapter 13, if you're visiting with us, we have been working through and marching through the Gospel of Matthew, and we have been in chapter 13 for a number of weeks, uh, as chapter 13 is filled with one parable after another that Jesus has given to us and is teaching us. Uh, Chapter 13 has seven parables, we have learned. Uh, Six of those all have the same main theme, which is the kingdom of heaven, kingdom of heaven, language unique to Matthew. Elsewhere we read of kingdom of God, same concept. In regards to this term, kingdom of heaven, uh, the late New Testament scholar George Ladd uh, says this, the kingdom of heaven is not a realm, but rather God's rule. It's not so much a physical domain or realm, but God's rule, kingship, and authority. He says, we're called to receive the kingdom of heaven as little children. But what is received? The church? Heaven? What is received is God's rule in our lives. We're also called to seek first His kingdom and His righteousness. Back in chapter 6 of Matthew. But what is the object of our quest? Is it the church? Is it heaven? Lad says, no, we are to seek God's righteousness, His sway, His rule, His reign in our lives. So it is His rule within the believer, this kingly rule. The Apostle Paul captures this very well in Romans chapter 14, verse 17, when he says, For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. And the initial question I would bring before us this morning is this. Is this way of life, life in the kingdom of heaven, life under the rule of Christ and in the gospel, this life of righteousness and peace and joy, is it easy or is it hard? Is it free or is it costly? Now, some of us might be inclined uh, to say, of course, it is of grace, it's free. We might even say it's easy, and we might quote from Matthew earlier in chapter 11, Jesus' words, come to me, all you who are heavy laden. My burden is light and my yoke is easy. Life in me has an easiness to it. I will lighten your burden. Or Romans 3, all have sinned and fall short of God's glory and are justified by his grace as a gift. Indeed, life in the kingdom, in the gospel, is granted by grace, unmerited favor. Others of us, though, might tend to say, no, the kingdom of God and life under Christ's rule is hard, and it is costly. And we too might quote from Jesus and say, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself. This is a life of self-denial. He must bear his own cross daily and then follow me. And so is life in the kingdom easy or hard, free or costly? Well, as you may know very well, I think the answer is yes. Yes. And here in Matthew 13, in just three verses, just two parables in three verses, I think Jesus captures both of those realities. Life in the rule, under the rule of Christ, life in Jesus Christ is both free, it is unmerited, it is this joy-giving gift. And at the same time, it costs us everything. It is, it is demanding of all of our life. And, and we want to feel both of those realities here as we hear from God's Word. So Matthew 13, uh, just a few verses, 44 to 46. 
Listen now to God's word. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value, went and sold all that he had and bought it. Three brief verses. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, many of us may be familiar with him and some of his writings. He was the uh, German Lutheran uh, Christian pastor, a theologian, wrote a number of works, uh, lost his life during World War II, uh, opposing Nazi Germany, died at age 39. Uh, he wrote The Cost of Discipleship, and he said this in it, which pertains directly to our text. He said, costly grace is the treasure hidden in the field. For the sake of it, a man will gladly go and sell all that he has. It is the pearl of great price to buy, which the merchant will sell all his goods. It is the kingly rule of Christ, for whose sake a man will pluck out the eye which causes him to stumble. It is the call of Jesus Christ at which the disciple leaves his nets and follows him. Costly grace is the gospel which must be sought again and again, the gift which must be asked for, the door at which a man must knock. And then he says, such grace is costly because it calls us to follow. And it is grace because it calls us to follow Jesus Christ. It is costly because it costs a man his life. And it is grace because it gives a man the only true life. Here Jesus gives us a pair of parables. And they're, you may have noticed, very similar in nature. It's not the first time. Just last week we saw two other parables very similar and very succinct as well. The parable of the mustard seed and the parable of the yeast or leaven. Here we have a similar concept. Two parables Matthew puts right uh, together and they have much in common. Did you notice their commonalities? Of both of these parables, they focus on the kingdom of heaven. Both involve a discovery either of a hidden treasure or this pearl of great value. In both, the men sell all that they have in order to take possession of this treasure. And in both, the treasure is not outwardly evident. It's not open or visible for all to see. It's not apparent or in plain sight. It it is hidden. John Calvin picks up on that aspect of these treasures, that they are hidden, not open for all to see. He says it's appropriate that life in Jesus Christ is described as hidden because we so commonly set a high value on what is visible, what we see with our eyes, teaching us that we ought not estimate the riches of God's grace according to the views of our flesh or vain appearance or outward display. How important this is. The True treasure and pearl of great value are not visible by the eyes in our heads. They're not seen and valued by those senses initially, but the eyes of our hearts. We have eyes in our hearts. Paul prays this way in Ephesians, that that the eyes of our hearts might be enlightened 
so that we will value something we weren't valuing before, that we will see something we didn't see before. And here we are just uh, less than a week out uh, from the biggest shopping day in the entire year in our country, Uh, a month out from two of the biggest shopping days in the year. Uh, You know which ones I'm referring to, Black Friday, the day after Thanksgiving, and then Super Saturday, not as familiar with that, but that's the Saturday before uh, Christmas. And on that day, on those days, people's eyes become quite wide, right? Looking and searching for those earthly treasures, right? That item or that object, that thing that is somehow going to fulfill the cravings of our desires. And, And so great are those desires that people will stay up all through the night. So I hear, I've never done it, and probably consume large quantities of caffeine to do so waiting in line hour hour after hour for that treasure. But people are by nature, we are by nature treasure seekers. We were built to pursue fulfillment and satisfaction in life. But what truly satisfies? What truly brings joy? Well, Jesus tells these parables in part to answer that question because these two men discover true joy. True fulfillment. And I want us to first notice the people described in these parables uh, who make the discovery. These are the beneficiaries of the kingdom in these stories. First is the parable of the hidden treasure in verse 44. The kingdom of heaven. It's like a treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he went and sold all he had to buy the field. Uh, Finding treasure, I think, still happens today in parts of the world. I think it's probably a bit rare. It seems to be more the stuff of fantasy, what we see in movies, what we read in books of fiction. But in Jesus' day, in the days of the disciples of war-torn Palestine, things were different. Uh, You had frequent war and conflict, frequent change of rulers, and it was common for men to divide a portion of their wealth and bury it in a safe place. And this is very likely behind the story. Uh, These were not the days of Wells Fargo and Key Bank. The ground was the safest of places, the most secure of places. And so Richard Linsky, a New Testament commentator, says this, Therefore it could happen that someone died And with that, all trace of the buried treasure was lost until by accident, he says, another stumbled upon it. That is the situation in this parable. It's important to note in this first parable, just one verse, that the man who discovers the treasure doesn't actually own the field where the treasure is discovered. In fact, the other detail or details of the parable all center around that one fact. He does not own the field, And in order for him to take possession of the treasure, it seems clear he must own and get possession of the field. So this man is not the owner of the field. Many believe he's a hired hand. Uh, He's he's a farm hand. He's working the ground. And commentators note this rabbinic law that states, if a man were to lift this treasure from its place, he would be required to hand it over to to the owner of the land. 
So his entire situation really rests on his standing or his economic status. To secure the treasure, he must purchase the land. Very likely he's a farmhand, a common person, a laborer, a peasant. But whether he was working the land or he was simply walking by and discovered it, we're simply told that this is a man. He's nameless. He's one of the many whosoever's throughout the scriptures. And by all indication, it seems that he simply simply stumbles upon it. It seems by accident. He's not searching for anything. There's no indication of this. It just, he comes across across it. He sees it. Now, that's a little bit different than the next parable. So here we have Matthew putting two parables very similar together, but they have some slight differences. The parable of the pearl describes a different person. Who is this person? He is a merchant. He is searching. He's searching for fine pearls. And based on the word behind merchant, we know this is not a retailer or a peddler of pearls. This is a wholesale merchant. This is someone who travels, very likely, quite uh, lengthy distances uh, in search of fine pearls and imports them. So this is his business. This is his expertise to discern and acquire fine pearls. And we learn that pearls were highly esteemed in Jesus' day. People would uh, commit large sums for a single pearl. And so great skill was required to assess the shape and the tint and the smoothness and therefore the value of these pearls. This man is not probably common. He's distinguished. He's probably wealthy, someone who handles fine things in the world. And unlike the man who stumbles upon the treasure, this man is searching He's in pursuit of fine things already. And so both of these men have in common the discovery of treasure, indeed, they've never seen before. Yet, how different they are. And perhaps they represent the diversity in the kingdom of God, in the kingdom of heaven, of the people within. Some people search long and hard for many years for satisfaction in life. They're searching for answers to the deep questions of life. Who am I? Why am I here? What's life all about? Where am I headed? Maybe they're even searching for what in their mind seems to be God. And along that path, along that search, the Lord, the true Lord, by His grace, reveals the pearl of great price. The Lord Jesus Christ. Something incomparable to the greatest treasures on earth. We could say of those seekers what is said in the hymn, I sought the Lord, and afterward I knew He moved my soul to seek Him as He was seeking me. It was not I that found Him, O Savior true. No, I was found of Thee. And that may be true uh, for some of us. And then there's others who are wandering through life. They're kind of going about their merry way. There's no thought of treasure at all. They're not seeking for anything. They're just working the ground. And then all of a sudden they hit something that does not sound like a rock. And their world is turned upside down. I heard a testimony like that just this past week. Life is never 
the same. Diverse, different, unalike are the recipients, the beneficiaries of Christ's kingdom. Some go searching for answers for many years. Others weren't interested in religious things, morality, truth, oblivious to the concept of sin. And then they hit this discovery. But there's an important point here about the nature of the kingdom and those within it. Our life stories, believers' life stories and journeys don't all look alike. We're going to see in a bit two baptisms. Some of us are covenant children raised in the body of Christ. There was not a day we did not know and feel the embrace and love of the Savior. And that's a glorious blessing. Others had never stepped foot inside a place of worship before meeting the Lord Jesus Christ as someone proclaimed the gospel to them. And so the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, it consists of a diverse people, rich and poor, black, white scholars, high school dropouts, high-profile people, the most common of people. Uh, There's no types who, trusting in Jesus Christ, don't belong in the kingdom of God. Which means people in Christ have a place to belong. Place to belong. That's what Paul said. There's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male or female. We are all one in Christ Jesus. But of greater importance in these parables, of much greater significance, is what these men have in common. Upon their discovery... They both see the worth of the treasure. Upon their discovery, they both see the worth of this treasure. They don't just see it with their eyes. They recognize its worth in their hearts. Remember why Jesus told these parables in the first place. The disciples had asked Jesus, why do you speak in parables? And Jesus provides them in part as a response and a communication regarding the hardness of hearts of the Pharisees and those like them. So he quoted from Isaiah chapter 6, back in verse 13 or 14 of this chapter. Many will indeed hear, but never understand. Many will see, but never perceive. How many people have walked the same path as the man in that first parable, right past the treasure. They didn't see it. They didn't recognize it. They didn't set their heart's affection upon it. Seeing but not perceiving. Hearing not understanding. But some do see its worth. And there's several points, a few important points about what happens when people see the worth of it. For one... Seeing the worth of this treasure precedes the sacrifice of giving up all. Very important in the story, in both of them. Seeing the worth of the gospel comes before giving up everything in life. And seeing the demand and the joy of this discovery. These men first discover the treasure, and it is that discovery that leads them to sell all in order to possess it. Do you notice in both parables there is a condition, but it is not a condition for 
discovering the treasure, but for possessing it in the stories. There's no moral precondition for discovering and seeing the worth of this treasure. The point that Jesus is making is not what is required in order to discover the treasure, but what happens to a person who does discover this treasure. They will give up all to possess it, to live for it. So these parables, they're not first about what we are giving up. I think that may be included for sure. We examine ourselves in light of that. But it is much more about seeing and savoring the worth of Jesus Christ and how that leads to sacrifice. Doing all that is necessary that this treasure would have central residence in our lives. This leads to another important point about the worth of the treasure. Its value and worth, notice, is so great, there is no room for any other competing treasures. Neither of these individuals, upon discovering the treasure or the pearl, simply throw them into their rucksack along with the other things that they have. The other fine pearls are treasures. The treasure and pearl cannot be merely added to the rest. What do they do to possess it? In both cases, we're told they went and they sold all that they had to obtain it. The gospel of Jesus Christ is no add-on to the rest of our lives. As if we have our work life, family life, personal life, and then somewhere in there we have life in Jesus Christ. It's a compartment, it's it's an add-on to the rest. No, it demands everything. It demands central place in our lives. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. It has that kind of worth and that kind of value. It's to have center stage in our hearts. And then everything else is ordered accordingly. It affects everything. And then there's something else vitally important about this treasure. Perhaps of greatest importance. The treasure is not only chosen, the treasure is cherished. Cherished. That's a check on the heart. Your heart and mine. The scriptures throughout present the treasure, the gospel and the person of Jesus, as not only truth to be chosen, but the treasure to be enjoyed. So it turns out, actually, that selling everything isn't so burdensome or onerous or wearing. In fact, in the grammar and the language of both of these there's an instantaneous move. As soon as they discover it, they go. They sell everything, and they go possess it. There's no, there's no question about it. They're, they're glad to do it. Why? It's because of what coming in contact with the treasure does to a person. It awakens. It awakens something. Deep joy. Verse 44, the kingdom of heaven, it's like treasure hidden in a field which a man found. He covered up. Then in his joy, in his joy, he goes and sells everything. Contact with the treasure, with the gospel of the Lord Jesus, fosters joy. 
And so what does joy do? It becomes the engine for sacrifice. It becomes the engine for change. Is life in Christ not only the path that you're choosing to live, but the path you delight in? Are we delighting? Are we joy-filled? Did you know that God not only commands of us right actions and right thoughts, but right feelings? That he has command not only over what we do, but how we feel. That's part of what joy is. It is an emotion. It is a feeling. He, he commands these things. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice, Philippians 4. How important that is in our everyday living. Not only that I am thinking correctly, acting correctly, but feeling. Now, that's hard to do. It's sometimes easier to will ourselves to a right action than a right motivation or a right feeling behind it. But he commands these things. God desires our joy. He commands our joy. Delight yourself in the Lord, the psalmist says in Psalm 37. He even commands degrees of these feelings. Forgive your brother from your heart. It's not just enough to forget the grievance, but to have a certain feeling about this person. What is this joy? In his joy, he went and sold all. It's not a mere emotional experience. Biblical joy is different. Uh, The world enjoys the most earthly and even ungodly of things. Christian joy is a good and godly feeling or affection produced in the heart by the Spirit who enables us to see, right, to treasure the beauty of Christ in His Word and in His creation. It is a right feeling, but it's produced by the Spirit and is directly connected to the treasure who is the Lord Jesus. Thomas Chalmers, as we come to a close, the 18th and 19th century Scottish minister, he preached a sermon entitled, great title, The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. And he said in that sermon these words, The gospel of Christ is expulsive in its power. It expels lesser treasures. It awakens a new appetite a new affection, a new sense, a new taste, a new longing in the heart that nothing but Jesus can fill. And that longing and that delight in Christ expels every rival. If you need, if you desire for more joy, come closer and closer in contact with the gospel, with this treasure. Contemplate it, meditate upon it, see it in the scriptures, that it will expel other rival treasures in our lives. This treasure brings true, deep joy. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for not only the revelation of the good news, this treasure, this pearl of great price, but Lord, how you are after our hearts that we would have joy in our lives. And Lord, sometimes we, as we are honest with ourselves, struggle with love, with joy, with peace. We feel anxiety, doubts, fears from all sides at times. 
And yet, Lord, how gracious you are to bring us to a place of discovering by your mercy and your revelation this incomparable treasure. And so we want to praise you, Lord, for the clarity of your word, the gospel of Jesus and his life and death and resurrection, and for inviting us, Lord, calling us into fellowship with you. We pray, Lord, that this would have central place in our lives. And we pray, Lord, a special blessing as we enter into a time of of witnessing and participating in baptisms, to see the sprinkling of this water, the pouring of this water, as reflecting a sign of, of, of the good news of what you have done in cleansing your people from sin through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.